you think about it, as we have now worked through this pandemic, everyone is working from home. And our business as an insurer, this was thought not to be our culture. But it's amazing how the pandemic and an event can create in you an energy and a desire and a willingness to take risk. And so the pandemic has forced us into a new way of thinking. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. Since our conversation, my guest today, Doug Parks, has taken a new position as the Chief Administrative Officer at Azamara. But our conversation is just too good not to share. Listen in as we discuss Doug's three phases of HR and how to be prepared for change. Let's dive right in. Doug Parks, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on. This is a, a long time coming. We made it happen. I appreciate you making it happen. I know you've got a lot on your plate between your corporate position, not to mention your position at home as a father. Yeah, things are an uh, interesting time for us right now. You think about what's happening in the professional world, right, with our pandemic of COVID-19, and you think about that, you think about some of the social unrest that we are dealing with as a country, as a company, uh, as a community, and then you layer on top of that, we, at least here in my role, we're embarking on a strategic affiliation. And so in my role as a people leader, you're often, you can deal with one of those. You might even be able to deal with two of those, but oh my gosh, dealing with all three and then you go home and I've got a, I've got a two-year-old who, let me take that back. We are working from home. He doesn't know the meaning of office hours. So try dealing with those three things and a two-year-old toddler at the same time. So you said an affiliation. Do you mind expanding on that? Our company is in, embarking on a uh, strategic affiliation with our, our partner, our healthcare partner just here to the east, or excuse me, to the west of us. So we are partnering in an effort to gain more synergies, to deliver value back to our members. And so I am looking forward to embarking on this work to drive synergies as we integrate our businesses where we can and deliver value back to the membership. Interesting. And then how does that affect what you do? Sure. So again, we are just recently announced a strategic affiliation with our, our brethren, like I said, to the West. And we're going to merge our businesses where we can to drive value for our membership. Ultimately, it's about, again, delivering quality, affordability, and access to care 
to healthcare services as a payer. And so in some respects, that requires an ability for us to scale and flex the business and a way to deliver against those three tenants. And so this is an effort for us to do that and achieve those outcomes. Sounds like you're going to have a lot on your plate, my friend. (laughs) People are, the people piece of this is critical, right? And so there are opportunities for us to partner, become a larger business across a broader array of businesses. And and for people, uh, you think about me and my role, there are people implications associated with that. Mm. And so how do we do that in a way that still values our associates and creates opportunities for them to achieve their full potential. And that's what this is, has also have to be about. Yeah. That's a lot of things to think about. Yeah. Think about that. And then you layer on top of that, Adam, you've got the pandemic and the social unrest, which are also people centric issues mm-hmm. that have thrust HR to the, where we voices are much stronger and HR having to flex a bit more as you deal with those type mm-hmm. of issues that are in our marketplace. Yeah. I mean, listen, I guess this is a good time to like sink or swim, right? Yeah, exactly. And what better way to do it? Get thrown into the deep end and let's just say good thing I know how to swim. Hey, so so let's give everybody a little better uh, understanding about you as a person. I've got a, a little section I like to call rapid fire where I throw a couple questions at you. Uh, sure. Right when you're ready to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw them at you. <laughs> All right, let's do it. All right. Introvert, extrovert, or do you find yourself toggling in the middle, something that they call either a centrovert or an ambivert? Yeah, ambivert. I think that would be accurate. There are times where, in the, again, in our role, some of it is role-driven. Some of it is inherent in who I am. And so I would say professionally, much more extroverted. And I think you have to be in my job, right? You, mm-hmm. It's hard to be an introvert and being a people leader. But however, I like to do things that are maybe uh, introvert, so reading, I enjoy reading a podcast or two. And so those are things that may be the marks of someone who who was a bit more introvert. So I think I flex across the two. Interesting. And I don't know if this question is appropriate for now, but because with a two-year-old, but are you an early bird or a night owl? (laughs) Well, I used to be a night owl. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, circumstances or fortunately, I have become an early riser. So I, my days can begin 5.30ish, 6 o'clock, and they really don't end, Adam. I think you've got a couple of little ones yourself, and so I'm sure you can appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I can over-appreciate that. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> you got any habits, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, that you'd uh, be kind enough to share with us? Habits. Let's see. I tell you, I have a habit of, it depends. So I stretch every morning. Right. So that's a habit. Um, a good habit. I spend, that's a good habit. 10, 15 minutes. My two year old watches me and he joins me doing it in his own way. So I get a good laugh out of that. So that would be one habit that I'm not sure people, not a lot of people know about me. Is there something that other people don't know about you that you'd care to share? You're opening yourself up now to the world? Oh my gosh. We're going to do that. Let's see here. <laughs> so I am one of nine. No way. I am one of nine and uh, number eight. And so, boy, I don't know how my mom did it. But yeah, we are a big family. It has made uh, for some challenges, obviously, in this time where we're all restricted from travel and the like. But uh, I miss my family a bit. But yeah, one of nine. Can you imagine what that was like at the 
say Thanksgiving time. I, I mean, every day uh, is Thanksgiving. Time. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> you got more people just every day than I had, like, at my Thanksgiving. Exactly. Oof. Exactly. That was a lot of fun. Well, one, of, one of my best friends is one of 11. How about Oof. that? So what were some of the best things to come if, my gosh, having eight brothers and sisters? It teaches you how to be scrappy. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, you have to be scrappy. So we one of, of nine here, and we grew up in a humble beginnings, you know, a two, three-bedroom apartment there on the south side of Chicago. So some humble beginnings, yeah. but it teaches you how to be scrappy, how to be flexible and nimble. And I, I take some of those traits to me to the job. Those are some of the best things that you could have, especially now. I mean, having to be agile and change is, I can't even begin to, sometimes what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Exactly. I mean, and then how do you pass on some of these things that you've learned having to be scrappy? How how do you osmose that or how do you teach that? Wow, that's a great question. So, boy, flexible, it just requires adapting to the situation. It's not easy, but if you stay constant on what you're trying to accomplish, stay uh, with a constant thought on that, keeping your eye and your thoughts there and letting that then dictate your actions and what's required and just freeing yourself up from any sort of preconceived notions about how you're going to get there and whether or not you're going to be successful or not mm. and just doing it. It's not easy, but the world we live in today just demands it. Don't you think? Oh, it, it's a must. It's an absolute yeah. must. <laughs> You've got to yeah. be able to do it. You evolve or die. You, you just have to. So now let's transition back over. You clearly have a lot on your plate. I'd love to know if there's, as leading the function of HR during these kinds of times, what's the overarching role of what you're doing right now? That's interesting. So the role today is really, I would say it centers on uh, first and foremost, how do we, how are we willing to respond to these, these two recent events at least? And it teaches us some life lessons on why we need to be flexible and to be nimble, to be scrappy. You think about it, as we have now worked through this pandemic, everyone is working from home. In our business, as an insurer, this was thought not to be our culture. But it's amazing how the pandemic and an event can create in you an energy and a desire and a willingness to take risk. And so the pandemic has forced us into a new way of thinking, a collective thought that, yes, we can be scrappy and nimble and we can do this. We will get through this. And, and so you think about literally that second week of March, we transitioned from having you know, roughly 95% of our workforce working in the office to now 95% working from home. And we haven't lost a beat and so it, it reminds me of when I first came here and going through our sort of initial phases, you're trying to get to know the company and the culture. And, uh, well, Doug, we can't do that. We can't deliver training that way. We can't deliver development that way. It just can't be done. And lo and behold, not only are we capable of doing it, we are excelling at it. And in fact, now that uh, our associates have had an opportunity to work from home, Many of them don't want to come back. (laughs) Hey, this feels good to me. This change feels good to me. It works. So you get into this whole notion of 
work-life integration. This is it in, in its essence. And so what we've learned and what um, the pandemic and these sort of external events that will force you out of your comfort zone and into a way of being that forces you to adapt and mm. to think. And so now if we can take this experience and apply it to almost any change, how might we view that change or any resistance that we're having differently? How do you create these sort of events that are where you're forced to act in a different way? How can you create them as a part of a normal course of business? Interesting. Now, did you have any kind of experience with change prior to this? Because that's, uh, you're, you're thrown into the fire. But is this yeah, you're th- yeah, so th- yeah, so I mean, I've, I've studied at Northwestern, this whole concept process of change. There are many organizations that will engineer events that will then force the organization to act, to change behaviors and mindsets. But it's amazing how what a pandemic will do. And so you're, you're often, <laughs> you hear the term a lot, never waste a good pandemic, right, or disaster. This is the essence of it. And it has really spurred people to a different way of thinking and what we are capable of. It reminds me of my mentors from, from a while ago, just saying to me, Doug, you're capable of more than you think you are. Mm. And I'll never forget him saying that to me. And so that's what this is forced organizations, our organization into, that we're capable of more than we thought. And so, this is just one, one example of it. Let me ask you this. When, when all said and done, because this, be, this will be a blip on the radar at some point, who knows when, but will you do anything to memorialize or document what you went through and will you create a playbook for the next time? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So we've, I know I posed that question to the leadership team. How do we take this and use it to create a way in which we should approach many of our change initiatives? You're often here of organizations that will create scenario, this sort of scenario-based sort of planning that would suggest or ask ourselves a question, what would happen? If we were, we were approached by an activist investor, mm. how would we behave differently? How would we approach uh, the decisions that we are confronted with today? If you are in a pandemic, how would we approach our business differently? And that's the kind of thing you've got to sometimes have to level set our leaders with to engineer these sort of scenarios to create an environment where people can let go of the old ways of doing things and think differently about the possibilities, about the upside. Yeah. So you've done this before, or you're saying this is something that you will be doing? This is something that I think a lot of companies do when you think about uh, an, an event where maybe as a publicly traded company, what if we were an activist investor who wanted a piece of our business? How would we behave differently? How would we approach operating expenses differently? How would we approach innovation differently? And how would we approach change in initiatives differently in a pandemic? How would we deliver a differentiated people agenda differently? How would we do that differently in the context of these different sort of, of scenarios? And so this is what we, we do here as a leadership team. We're constantly grappling with and what if a competitor in our business, you've got many 
think about the healthcare business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a big part of our GDP, our gross domestic product. And there are opportunities uh, to streamline, to deliver, again, quality, access, and affordable care, and to do it in a way that's different. And so you constantly have to ask yourselves, we ask ourselves, how can we do it differently? It's not easy because, again, there are, there are many that are wedded to the old ways of doing things, but it takes asking ourselves those kinds of questions. Sometimes, Adam, it just takes a pandemic <laughs> uh, to force people out of their comfort zone and do it differently. But I think we're going to take a lot of lessons learned from this. And constantly, how do you build this sort of thinking and scenario planning and make it part of your business? Wow. A lot goes into that. It reminds me of a quote, failing to prepare is preparing for failure. Yeah. I like it. I think I'm going to use that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, oh, I'm, I'm sure. I, I'm glad to, to have that part of your repertoire because that's uh, <laughs> you guys are clearly uh, prepared, which is it sounds like you've thought through this a lot more than most organizations do. And it sounds like it's something that you're pretty active with. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think you have to be, particularly in this day and age, where, again, in our business, there are, there are many threats, direct and indirect, to our business when you think about it being, what, a third of our GDP. There's a lot of spend on a yearly basis tied into healthcare, a lot of conversation in, at the state level, at the federal level, around what can we do to, again, deliver healthcare in a way that's uh, quality, access, and affordability. How do, you know, those three things, there are opportunities inherent in them, and it's our responsibility to find them and deliver that back, that value back to our members. Yeah. In your role, I'm assuming you've got to make a lot of tough decisions. Sure. You know. Sure. You're constantly facing, particularly when, you're, when you think about people and talent, mm-hmm. and in my job, it's really to deliver along those three Uh, dimensions of quality, access, and affordability. How do we deliver differentiation along those three dimensions that's enabled by people? How do our people uh, need to show up in a way that's differentiated from our competitors? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the CHRO being a risk manager? Boy, you better be. (laughs) I think the way I look at risk, it's interesting. So you think about risk, there's an upside component in risk, and then there's a downside. I think, uh, in most cases, my experience has taught me that most people will do more to protect the downside mm-hmm. than to capture the upside. There's a theory on that. I forgot the name of it, but yes. Yeah, right. And so, and then you think about now, uh, not to get too HRE, as I'd like to say, <laughs> but think about this for a moment. I mean, you. If you think about, again, just this whole concept of risk, what do we need to do to capture the upside? And it differs, a different way of thinking when you think about healthcare and insurance, my business, where it often, when you think about insurance, inherent in some of that mindset is protect, right? To insure against the tragedy that may occur the bad thing that may occur, right? And so it's hard when you think culturally to think about and flip that and think, okay, here's the upside. How would we make a different decision around our talent, around our people that 
is not so much about protecting our downside, but how is it going to help us capture more margin if we make this kind of talent decision? Or how is it going to help us capture more market share if we make this kind of talent decision? And so it takes constantly asking that kind of question of ourselves. This way, in this sense, it's tying it to our business outcomes, which we all want to grow in our business. We want to grow membership. I was going to ask you, when you start thinking about things like that, how important is brand for Mm -hmm. an organization? And what is your role as HR and what's your involvement with Mm -hmm. building and maintaining that brand? The brand is delivered through through your people. There's a theory that says we don't own our reputation or our brand, but we don't own it, but we have to deliver against it. And so when you think about our business, the, the brand, the reputation is owned by the experience that we create for our members. Mm. And so all it takes is one bad example, right? You could go through 80 years of delivering value for members and it takes one bad decision, one uh, sort of experience that a member could have. And with technology today, it spreads globally in an instant. And so when you think about our business and the fact that if we don't own our brand or our reputation, but we have to deliver against it and it takes people to deliver that. And so in my job, we have to constantly be looking at it through that lens as a risk manager of, are we hiring the right talent? Is this uh, the type of talent that will show up in a way that's differentiated, that will deliver against our desires to deliver, again, a differentiated member experience that helps us become their service provider of choice. And so when you think about it through that way and constantly you're asking yourself those questions, is this the right leader to deliver against that? I think it forces people to make different decisions. What I have to do in my role is constantly challenge our leaders to ask ourselves and to look at it through that lens and I think it's, it's part of what we have to do as people leaders. How do they like being challenged? <laughs> <laughs> you know, any good leader worth his or her salt, right? No one wants to be necessarily challenged. But in my job, I, as I tell them, I don't get paid to do your job, mm. right? So if you're working with a business leader and he or she has to deliver membership growth or they have to deliver the legal function, or they have to deliver the finance function, right? They have to deliver growth smart. And so I don't get paid to deliver those things, but I do get paid to have a point of view on the outcomes Mm. of those things. And those things are delivered through people. And so in that sense, let's partner to get this done. That's a good approach. Can you walk me through you and I were speaking, I forgot if it was last week or the week before, and you talked about a, a three-phased approach to meeting the needs of high-growth companies. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through those? Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, so yeah, we were, I think we were talking about yeah, HR, HR transformation. And so yeah, in my job, yeah, I, I didn't grow up in HR. And so I grew up on what I like to call the front end of the business. So I'm more on the sales side and and that sort of marked the first act of my career. And then the, the second act of my career was more on the spent in the OD and strategy world, so in mm-hmm. consulting. And so, and then the, this third act has been spent in people. And so my experiences have taught me when you approach an HR, HR transformation, it's this three-phase approach that, as I 
have um, entered into this role in prior HR roles. You're approaching HR transformation. There's marked by three phases, as I like to any good consultant will give you a framework. So my, my framework looks something like uh, the first phase being that discover phase. And, and so that's delivered through sort of foundation building around you know, your current assessment of the current state, right? Typical sort of people, process, technology sort of things, assessments. But it would also include things around an assessment of policies and programs and the, right? developing an understanding of the business. What's it trying to get done? And asking ourselves, how's that enabled by people? And then the big part of that first phase that I've learned is about mitigating risk, some of the risk inherent in, in, in our policies. And so I recall when I first got here thinking, guys, we haven't transformed and evolved the HR function since the flip phone. <laughs> and our goal has to be to become a smartphone. How are we going to do it? And we're going to go on this journey of three phases. So that first phase, I kind of call the discovery phase. And then the second phase, I, I call the shape phase. So this is where you begin to shape the function to, to really meet the needs of the business. And so that's achievable through talent, and it's accelerated through technology. So this is where you got to start to look at your talent within your HR team, uh, your HR leadership team, really optimize your some of your programs and your policies. And then you got to look at technology and to not look at it would be just simply a huge mistake in any HR function today. And so you start to think about the brand and the value proposition and how do you, what are the things you need to do to deliver differentiated value? Okay. And so that's where you start to shape the function and your people agenda and then you move to the scale phase. And the scale phase is really achievable through analytics and being digital. Mm. And so this is about scaling, again, the functional programs, policies, et cetera, such that we're able to build it in business agility and the ability to flex the function in a way to deal with things like a pandemic to support the business, right? To build in some this notion of resiliency and the like. And that takes people analytics. It takes a level of being digital within the HR function, particularly now in this work from home environment. And so a level of digital expertise and then evolving the, how you deliver a differentiated people experience. Uh, where do we flex the HR muscle that we've built as you've matured the function and the programs and the policies. And now this is where you start to flex. You flex your muscle in the areas where you've exercised. And so yeah, inherent in a lot of these, and I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version of this, there's a lot of detail beneath this sort of approach. And I'd like to say currently in my, in my current role, we're still in the shape phase. We're now entering into the scale phase. And it feels good uh, that you sort of lay out this journey to being a differentiated function. And, and so it feels good to know that you're, we're on our mark. We're on, we're on our mark. Excellent. Congratulations on that. So in terms of your mark, is there a rule of thumb on how long these phases take? I'm sure it's going to vary per organization, per field, all those kinds of things. But I don't know mm -hmm. if there's, is this something that typically transforms, I don't know, six months, one year, multiple mm -hmm. years? 
I'll tell you, and you're dealing with some of the business leaders, boy, you, how do you accelerate? Doug, can you just get us to here now? And, and, and sometimes you just can't. So there's no clearly defined sort of mark uh, that says you're going to, this is going to take this amount of time or that amount of time. So you just, you lay out the things that you have to do. Some organizations are in a different place. Some of it is we have barriers, uh, cultural things that you have to deal with. And so when you think about our culture, we're a risk-averse culture. And so when you're asking some of our leaders to make different kinds of decisions around their talent, we're a long-tenured workforce, right? With long-tenured associates that have been with us for a long time. And so some of that's good, lends itself to, to good business outcomes. There are times where it can become a barrier and we need to do things and think about our talent in a way that's different because what got us here won't get us there. And sometimes it just takes a different kind of decision. And so we flex the model, this sort of model, depending upon the level of change that the organization is, can accept. And sometimes we, Adam, as I like to say to my boss, uh, sometimes I'm nudging in this direction and that'll get us there. And then sometimes I say, you know what, we're going to push here. So you move from a nudge to a push. <laughs> and then if the push doesn't work, then you break glass and you say, okay, now I think it's time for us to move on. But if you give people an opportunity to step into the change that we're asking them to take on, and you do that through this sort of nudging and pushing a bit, how do we create an environment where people can be motivated and delivering to their best? And sometimes if you feel like you've done that and they're still not doing, then you've, you've, you've got to move on. Yeah. Wow. A lot of takeaways. Doug, I want to thank you for making today happen. I feel especially uh, guilty right now after hearing about all the things that are on your plate. This was time well spent from my perspective. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's what else could we do on a late Friday afternoon? Oh, right? This is true. Maybe do it again. That's what we let's, could be doing. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, Doug, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, and I hope you make it a great day. You do the same. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up-to-date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise. Network Wise.